This is an ABC podcast. Hello there. Let's do this once more, shall we? Welcome to the minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life, or sometimes just describe them and then move on with nothing really altered very much at all. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-describer. Hey, Scott. Co-describer. I like that. That works for me. Yeah. Is that what we're going to do today? Ah, I hope we do a little bit more than that. But I think if we get description right, that may well be half the battle. Well, that's what people who only describe things always say. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, possibly. Let's hope for more, though. Okay. As long as we don't promise it, all right? Okay. Because I just don't want to be on the the wrong end of a promise. No. Um, How do you want to introduce it? Well, uh, we actually flagged it at the very end of our Ramadan series that this was coming, and now the inevitable has arrived. I will confess, Willie, this is a topic I've been wanting to do for the better part of three years, and it actually began with uh, an experience that I observed from my two youngest sons that then became, I wouldn't exactly say an obsession when I read about the research of a guest that we had on our show a couple of years ago, Barbara Barbosa Nevish, when she joined us to discuss some of the uh, ethics and politics of the funding of aged care facilities. But the more that I've thought about it, after those first two experiences, this has developed very, very quickly into something bordering on an obsession. Loneliness. Mm. Loneliness. There is a whole political and ethical problem associated with both the experience of loneliness, its technological undergirdings, but also the extent to which loneliness is both a product of and the preconditions for a particularly debased or debauched form of anti-democratic politics. Um, you know, we've we've talked, I think, increasingly in public discourse about loneliness and its associated problems for about the last six or seven years. Loneliness is an expression of social isolation, people just not being connected anymore to their communities. Loneliness being the result of the slow but sure decline and in some places collapse of things like trade unions and uh, religious organizations and public libraries. Uh, loneliness as being a product of, say, social and economic disenfranchisement, where people simply no longer have access to those forms of life that would remit them into the conditions, into the state of our social body, and therefore living in states of marginalization, sort of, you know, barely being part of of our common life. Um, as we Can approach, I stop you there for a second? Yes, please. What's the difference between loneliness? An atomization yeah. in that description. I mean... Because I don't think of them as the same thing. Yeah. But maybe I should. Well, I mean, atomization is a social descriptor, isn't it? It's the diagnosis yeah. of a particular condition in which the bonds that hold together a life in common have slowly atrophied and finally frayed. Loneliness, the consequence of which is widespread loneliness, right? It can be, yes. Although some, for some people, of course, they have access to certain things which would alleviate that experience of loneliness. I mean, what we, I think we mostly mean by loneliness, I don't know any description of loneliness or any definition of it that doesn't involve a pained experience. Loneliness isn't something that is a mere description of someone's social state, but it is rather the phenomenology of whatever that social state is. But I think usually, usually when we talk about loneliness, what we are referring to is social isolation. We may well be, and and the lived experience of social isolation, we may well be referring to the emotional response to a condition of atomization, the life, a form of life without those connective tissues that are not just political, but that form the substance of, say, our civic society. But there's something else here that's going on that I think really began to take shape in and through the pandemic. We became very naive, and I think we forgot very quickly some of what we'd begun to learn in the years leading up to the pandemic. Because forms of social technology were quickly experienced as a lifeline to one another that was greatly received, gratefully received by most, if not all of us, ways, necessary ways of keeping in contact with people that we love or, you know, holding our place within the social body. 
I think some of the dangers that are associated with that particular form of digitally mediated uh, association were forgotten in our relief that those forms of connection were available. So let me just begin this way, and then I'm going to hand it over to you to take things wherever you want. This isn't the extent of the discussion, but this is what really got me thinking about it. So after a long while of my wife and I sort of just really not wanting my two young sons to be anywhere near a game like Fortnite, uh, we succumbed because all of their friends were on it. And they leapt on with a rare zeal. And then an experience, it was my youngest son that was the first person to register it. So if you know anything about the game, it's a social game. You get online with your friends. You can be in chat rooms while you're playing. And, you know, part of the promise of the game is that you can be talking with one another while you're doing essentially an all or nothing battle royale for, you know, to be the last remaining survivor. It was really nice for my youngest lad for about two weeks. And then he had his first experience of his friends being online and on the game and not inviting him into their party. And just think about that for a second. They were there and he knew that they were there. He was there and they knew that he was there and they didn't invite him to be part of it. And then what begins with a suggestion, I wonder if my friends know that I'm online with them, was a confirmed reality. He can see in the room or online, he can see that they're present. And then suddenly what becomes a, I wonder if they've just overlooked me, becomes confirmed as, they know that I'm here and they haven't extended an invitation. And how he described that to me later that day, when I tried to talk to him about why he was so upset, he says, dad, I just feel so alone. That really shook me, I'll confess. And then I came across this book by Nurina Hertz, The Lonely Century, where she describes the evolving lot of research that tracked the known correlation between adolescents and high school and university students being online, always being connected, the correlation between them always being online and them experiencing or reporting profound experiences of loneliness. She tracked the research that demonstrates not just correlation to these two things, being online and feeling lonely, that that quickly became confirmed as a form of causation. In other words, the very experience of always being online has helped generate substantially the feeling of being alone, of being isolated. This might be because of the coarseness and causticness, the meanness and the indifference that's often experienced online, but it's also, well, one particular experiment that she makes reference to is about a, a teenager named Claudia in her senior year at high school. She reports sitting on her couch at home, being online, and seeing photos posted by her friends of them being out at a party and she wasn't invited and her not being able to leave home four weeks after that because she felt like her friends had effectively abandoned her. The very knowledge of the experience of being alone, of having been shunned or overlooked by her friends and them enjoying this time without her, this was then something that produced this profound feeling of separation between her and them. And then there was this experiment that Barbara Barbosa Nevish from Monash University that she was involved in and spoke to me and wrote for me about, about the development uh, from a team of researchers of an app, a form of technology that would enable people who lived in aged care facilities to stay in easy contact with their family outside of those aged care facilities. And she told the story of one particular resident named Chris, an 80 eight-year-old man who was living in aged care. He was really enthusiastic about using this particular form of technology that had been developed. He said he was looking forward to communicating with his broader family. His family had access to the app. He had access to the app. And what he discovered very, very quickly is that despite his messages, responses from his family were not forthcoming. And Barbara reports that Chris quickly stopped using the app I'm now just waiting for my funeral, he said, upon the conclusion of the study. So there's something going on here about the very fact that we are connected with one another that leaves so many people feeling profoundly 
disconnected precisely because we have ways of quantifying the extent to which we are being seen, we are being recognized, we are being included, or we are being overlooked. And then if you then, if you then combine that with the constant need of social validation in and through social media. So this is the other thing that Norena Hertz points out in her book, that people posting things as a way of being recognized, and then when nothing follows, no retweets, no likes, the experience of being isolated in a world is then almost overwhelming. So there is one of the paradoxes, I think, of our age, is that the very forms of technology that are meant to be keeping us connected are leaving so very, 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 very many people easy prey to a kind of existential isolation, a form of profound loneliness, precisely by being relentlessly, constantly, or at least regularly overlooked. Do you want to pick up anything at that point? So I think although that's correct, to my mind, obviously so, I guess the obvious observation to make is that for all these digital examples... There are very familiar analog analogs. Mm. I can't figure out if that's analog analogs is great. A I love terrible that. one. No, it's yeah. good. Um, we've all had that experience of either being or seeing the person in a conversation who, every time they speak, the ball drops, and no one really wants to pick it up again. Mm. Right? No one responds. They turn around and they go anyway, and keep the conversation going in whatever way they wanted it to go. Yep. We've all had that. We probably all remember a time from primary school or high school where we weren't invited to the party that everyone else was, and we discovered that on Monday when everyone was talking about it. Or maybe we discovered it in the lead up to it quite brutally because it was pointedly made clear to us that we weren't invited to a certain thing. So, what's different exactly? Is it just that technology affords more opportunities for that experience? That is, if we're constantly in groups communicating, it's more likely at some point that we will have that experience of being the odd one out in that group or not being brought into the conversation or being ignored or whatever, just as numbers just means that. Is it that? Or are we saying there's something particular about the affordances of the technology? There's something about the way that it works. The one that perhaps made me saddest was the example of that. Was it an elderly man? Yeah. Now, the thing about that is, and I've noticed this with digital communication, I suspect everyone's noticed it, it just favours certain modes of, certain styles of communication. Mm, That's right. Right. There are certain people who are just quote unquote better at it. I can't quantify it exactly. I'm sure someone has come up with the, all the criteria that determine whether or not it's successful, but it's probably pithy it probably has a particular sense of humor about it. Like I don't, what I mean by that is not that it has to be funny, but if it has a humor in it, it's a particular kind of humor that works. And so you get this thing, which happens in real life, but I feel like is intensified in the digital world where, for example, millennials will roll their eyes at the emails or the GIFs or the texts or the memes or whatever that boomers share. Because there's something about that technological environment that means that that style of communication that's common among boomers, let's say, just doesn't, isn't carried off very well. Mm. Now, I don't know the particulars of this man you're talking about, but it sounds to me like a classic one. It's not that, well, I don't know, but let's assume for argument's sake, it's not that everyone wants to ignore him. It's that his mode of communication just doesn't mesh very well with this particular Form. Yeah, it actually goes deeper than that, Waleed. It's that while he's in an aged care facility and doesn't often see his family, you can live with the suspicion they would if they could, but they're probably just busy. But then when there's a technology that alleviates or that reduces the plausible deniability, they would if they could, and that confirms they just don't want to be in contact. But does it confirm? This is my point. Does it confirm that they just don't want to be in contact? Because it might just confirm that they find it very difficult to interact with him on that forum. Mm, Possibly. Like I've seen this in action. Yeah. And it's especially a generational thing. And particularly because I think younger demographics dominate 
technology because that's what always happens, right? They, they're always more in tune with the technology of the day, right? And we've been joking about this ever since people used to say I had to get my 10-year-old to fix my VCR or whatever, right? because this is a common trope. It's a common trope because that's what happens, right? Mm. It's, it's real. I have no doubt you or and I could be in internet-based forums, like say WhatsApp groups or something like that, where we would we would find our thoughts incommunicable within yeah. that context, but That's we'd right. actually be fine in person, right? So everything you've outlined, I, I see, right? I see the scorecard problem. Um, we've spoken about that in the context of, you know, body image, et cetera, mm. where people or you know, particularly teenage girls will take a photo of their outfit and they'll put it up. And if they don't get a certain number of likes, then they feel crushed by it and they have to go get changed or whatever. We've all heard those sorts of stories. So the scorecard aspect of it, I understand. The idea that just simply proliferating the number of potential social scenarios in which we're engaged means that it's more likely that we're going to face rejection in more scenarios, right? But I get that. I think that that happens. I think there's something inherent in the technology itself, just in that there are certain modes of communication that work better on it than others. And so some people, especially if they haven't grown up with that, are likely, if they're, especially if they're talking to people who have grown up with it, they're likely to find a communication mismatch. I see all these factors sort of at once. And so I don't know if it's a matter of increasing digitization of life means more loneliness. I suspect that's true, by the way. Mm. I've been arguing that for a long time, but it's very hard for me to stand here right now and say I know this empirically to be true. Well, there is actually empirical data. And again, Norena Hertz actually sort of traces this out quite carefully. There is empirical data that by reducing the amount of time that uh, it was 3,000 participants uh, reducing the amount of time that they spent on WhatsApp, Snapchat, Instagram, and Facebook to 10 minutes a day significantly, measurably reduced the experience of, like the felt experience of loneliness. Yes. And by and getting no off by that. getting off Facebook yeah. altogether, it almost decimated the experience of loneliness. Yeah, yeah. I so I've, I have no doubt. Look, you'll find very few people who've been more opposed to social media for longer than I have, yeah. right? So you don't have to convince me of that. But I guess what I'm saying is there, are, there could be many explanations for that phenomenon. Mm. One could be because they're not doing that, they're having more social interactions with people with whom they're more compatible mm, in forums... Right in which the communication styles are more compatible, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. And that's sort of... Or it could be something else, that there's something about the interface of that that is just inherently alienating and that makes you lonely, right? It's something about the artifice of it, which is why the young folk like to say when someone is getting too rolled up and caught up in their own cycle of thoughts on on the internet, go and touch some grass, right? Mm. That there's there's something neurological or spiritual that goes on when you actually connect with what's real rather than what's virtual. I suspect that to be true. I just I just can't prove it. Mm. Either way, we know we're dealing with what's a, an epidemic of loneliness. And we know that our online lives have a major part of that. I suppose the only import of the questions I'm raising of the epistemic limitations of what we're talking about is that they might suggest different sorts of solutions. In other words, if it's not inherent to the technology, as I suspect it is but can't prove, then maybe there's a way of adapting to that. Yeah. Or a way of using that that's, that would actually be about connection. Okay. Now, this actually brings us then to the second aspect of loneliness, which is the one that I'll confess, I mean, while that first kind of digital or digitally mediated expression was the one that I guess has got me thinking about it, it's the second one that concerns me far more. Not least because it predates the social media age. It predates the era of kind of digital or smartphone saturation. So, so the first thing that we were talking about was, I guess, the kind of difference, if you like, between social isolation and loneliness. Um, loneliness can actually be something that you experience profoundly while surrounded by other people. Or it can be something you experience profoundly even in the middle of actual communications. Uh, so it needn't necessarily mean being ignored. Um, and it can certainly take place in the midst of digital connection. But there's another form of loneliness, and this would be, if you like, the political expression of loneliness. And here, its opposite wouldn't be social isolation, but it would be solitude. It's funny, you were mentioning before, you know, we've all had the experience of you know, not being invited to a party at school or not being invited, invited to the dance. I never, I mean, as you know, I never went to school. 
I mean, it was what I longed for. It's what I dreamed of, but it was the particular you know, nature of my upbringing of profound solitude and lack of connection with other people. And I mean, maybe it's kind of, it suits me dispositionally, but solitude is something that I find I increasingly crave desperately. I mean, Hannah Arendt had a beautiful quip that solitude is sublime, company is beautiful. That may all be right. I enjoy company. Solitude for me is, is almost transcendental. Speaking of Arendt, though, she diagnosed with a kind of rare acuity. You find, I think, resonances of it maybe in someone like Thoreau, but it really is there in Arendt, that loneliness is not just an experience of being isolated. Loneliness involves two things within, say, politically corrupt environments or politically debauched environments. Loneliness involves a kind of eradication of the concept of the self. So someone can be lonely in a claustrophobic form of collectivity where there is a, an enforced conformity or where she says everybody tends to speak in cliche, having simply imbibed the doctrine or the prevailing ideology of that which is in power. So loneliness can be the loss or the eradication of the self. One cannot think for oneself. One cannot really speak for oneself. And so you have recourse to, like I said, cliche or what Gustav Flaubert called received ideas, things that are just passed down, passed down. And uh, the annihilation of individuality, which is not the same thing as a turn to individualism. No, that's right. But yeah, okay. The, the, the loss of the ability to truly think to comport oneself rightly towards the world and towards others. But the other thing that this loneliness expresses itself as is she describes it as a separation from the reality of the world so that you find yourself living in a condition of increasing skepticism about what it is that you believe that you know and skepticism about what is true, in fact, about the world. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about the ethics of knowledge, that the point of knowledge is the construction of a shared world in which we can live and breathe and act and speak with one another. The deprivation of a shared world is a world in which one cannot really be an agent. One cannot really act with others. Uh, there's no shared democratic space within which we can cooperate, collaborate, and achieve something together. Instead, she describes it, well, I'll just read. Uh, she, this is what Hannah Arendt writes in The Origins of Totalitarianism. What makes loneliness, she says, so unbearable is the loss of oneself, which can be realized in solitude, but confirmed in its identity only by trusting and trustworthy company of my equals. In this situation, a man loses trust in himself as the partner of his thoughts and elementary confidence in the world, which is necessary to make experiences at all. Self and world, capacity for thought and experience are lost at the same time. So it's almost like she casts loneliness as a form of radical skepticism, unsuredness of oneself and what one thinks, and skepticism about the world, about what really is true. And she says that that type of loneliness, the inability to think for oneself and to behave and collaborate in common with others in the construction of a shared world, she says that these are the preconditions and the product of totalitarianism itself. And they're two they're opposite poles, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. Right. So, so one is the annihilation of individuality because of an overweening and dominant collective. The other, it seems to me, is the impossibility of any kind of collective mm. because there is nothing that can be shared. So if knowledge is so constrained by top-down dictation... Or if knowledge is impossible because all you have is the immediate deconstruction of any kind of knowledge. Exactly. That's right. So we're in the latter at the moment, mm -hmm. which I think helps explain this epidemic of loneliness and also anxiety, I think, has to go. In with mm. this. There was a, a brilliant Ross Douthat column recently about this where he said, that it's yeah, the smartphones are terrible and they've created all kinds of, or they've exacerbated anxiety in people, especially young people. But actually, it was just the axe that was felling an already rotten tree mm. because what we'd done over how many decades was create a society that couldn't believe in anything. And so we were ripe for this. But I think what's so interesting about that and what holds these two things together, the kind of the loss of self and loss of the ability to inhabit and to act within a common world, is 
the very capacity to truly be oneself, to own one's words, to express what one believes and to believe what one expresses, to abandon cliche and mere conformity. Uh, in other words, to bring out into public and into our shared life together that which is born as a result of our labors in thinking. I mean, you know, remember the high regard that Arendt has for the task of thinking. It's bringing that in common, meaning what we say and expressing what it is that we mean, such that that, you know, that which is true or which is proper to ourselves is then combined productively with other agents in which we discover something like uh, shared productive possibilities. Those are all the things that are then squashed if, on the one hand, we live in a time of overweening conformity or in a time in which there is nothing substantial, nothing true to which we can grab hold of, and that those fundamental facts that constitute the conditions of our common world are the very things that are up constantly for debate. It is interesting, by the way, that uh, Arendt also says that people who live in this kind of condition, they see themselves or they cannot help but experience themselves as not agents, but as passive objects along which history moves and rumbles. And all we can do is sit there and allow that history to move over us. This, I think, is maybe where the discussion meets back up with social technologies. I mean, how often, Waleed, have we been told that these are ineluctable, irresistible changes? We can only adapt ourselves pathetically to them and try to find some kind of peace with them. So I think these two things, the lack of agency, the inability to express ourselves beyond cliché, the inability to find a sufficient agency and the proper moral sense of individuality where we combine our efforts with other people. These are all the things I think that produce and that are exacerbated by this overweening condition of radical loneliness. We have a guest waiting for us in New York, so why don't we um, bring her in? Uh, our guest, and this is a rare privilege and pleasure, Samantha Rose Hill is a lecturer at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research in New York City. It just so happens that she's also the author of a fabulous intellectual biography of Hannah Arendt for the Critical Live series. And just to make things all the more wonderful, she's writing a book for Yale University Press on, of all things, loneliness. Samantha, thank you so much for joining us on The Mindfield. Thank you so much, Scott. So you've heard us try to sketch out a fairly broad terrain. You may or may not want to take up the invitation to discuss the technological dimensions of loneliness, although it seems to me that if Arendt was writing today, she would find that irresistible. Where do you want to take mm -hmm. the conversation from here? It's, it's been really fascinating listening to you and Waleed talk about loneliness and to sketch this kind of broad geographical terrain. You know, the example that you open the conversation with about your son playing these video games. What are they called? Are They're two-player interactive video games. The first time I taught a course on loneliness about five years at the Brooklyn Institute, a mom came to the class and everybody was going around the room giving their definition of loneliness. And when it got to her, she said, I don't know what loneliness is, but I know that I'm here because all my son does is play these video games where he talks to people in headphones mm. and he's not present at all. And I'm worried about him. And I don't know if this is actually making him lonely or <laughs> preventing him from being lonely. And <laughs> the answer, and is, so the answer it, is probably yes. <laughs> yeah, yine is the good German word yeah. I often reach for. Yes and no. <laughs> so, you know, you immediately put me back in that classroom. I think we have to talk about technology. Hannah Arendt talks a lot about technology in the human condition, mm. which is probably the work more relevant to loneliness, I would say, That's than right. the origins of totalitarianism. She begins with the launch of Sputnik into space and positions the reader on Earth, looking up at the night sky and seeing this man-made object orbiting in the heavens that was put there by their hands, but they have no relation to. And then later in the book, she talks about what has become Carl Sagan's kind of image of the pale blue dot. You know, what has it done to the human psyche to be able to look back on the earth and to see it within the vast expanse of the cosmos? And this has a lot to do with the way that Hannah Arendt talks about both what it means to be a person who is born on the earth and makes the world in common 
with other people because technology has radically changed both the earth, which is our home, and it has also changed the world that we make and share with one another. And, you know, for Hannah Arendt, all thinking moves from experience, which is what you were talking about toward the end when you were you were talking so beautifully about knowledge, Walid, and thinking about how, you know, we go out in the world and we have experiences with our, our senses, but we live in a time such that people can no longer trust themselves. And so thinking becomes divorced from experience, which creates a really dangerous culture of cynicism and fear and suspicion and violence. And, you know, for Arendt, all thinking moves from experience, but our experiences today are mediated by technology. And so that means that the very fabric of our thinking has changed. And so we have to go back and think about how it is we both are experiencing everyday life alone and with one another, but also what it's done to the quality of our thinking as individuals in a collective society. So can I just pick up, Samantha, your point about Arendt and the human condition? Because there's something yes. that's going on there in those first 15 pages that I've always found almost revelatory. So the opening with Sputnik is, is famous. She goes on to say, what's behind this desire, this longing to transcend the limits of the conditions of our common world? She talks about the atmosphere as yes. the condition of the human condition, the environment in which we can breathe and move without apparatus. And breathing and moving there, I think, is important because breathing is connected for Arendt to speaking and moving, of course, is connected. Thinking. Yes. And moving is, is also connected to action. And so she says that the world in which we live, the only way that we can create that common world together is by speaking to one another, by acting together within it. So what is behind the desire to transcend this sphere other than, and she then connects that to our increasing recourse to mathematics? over speech. What's behind that other than the desire to leave the limitations of human speech and human action behind? I mean, if you think about the sheer quantities, the speed, the collapsing of space that's all involved with technology, there is a kind of, and then to say nothing about Elon Musk's desire to colonize other planets, there is something <laughs> there, isn't there? It's the desire to leave the limitations of human speech and cooperation or compromise, and the desire to leave behind the limitations of democratic collaboration and compromise. These are all the things that mitigate loneliness, and yet all the things that through our technological endeavors at the moment we are seeking, it seems to me, and I think it seemed to Iran, that we want to leave behind. Yes, absolutely. And to just build off of that, you know, she describes this in terms of eternity and immortality right. and talks about how as people, we no longer act in a way that permits us to think about the world beyond our own lifespan. We no longer act in a way to do great deeds in a way that we will be remembered by others to gain immortality in a way. Because for Arendt, you know, we appear here and we disappear here and our lives are structured by this earthly calendar time. So all we can do is act you know, in the course of our lives. But instead of focusing on that and what it means to be here now, all of the resources of math and science and technology are being put in the pursuit of eternity, hmm. of extending human life as long as possible in an attempt to escape the human condition altogether. And, you know, she was writing this book in the 1950s. It was published in 1958. And I think it was in 1955 when geneticists started talking about the ability to, for example, design 
design babies um, and various things like that. But she was also thinking about the atom bomb. Mm. That's the other piece of technology that's really lingering in the background of those opening pages of the human condition and the fact that with these incredible means of progress, we've actually created the means to destroy ourselves altogether. And the fear in that book is that we have totally lost freedom in the modern world. And that I think intimately connects to this topic of loneliness, because for Arendt, freedom, as you were saying, Scott, is this word movement mm. for Arendt. We have to be able to move. And that means both being able to move between private life and public life and the ability to move in the world in a way that nourishes the spaces between us as individuals instead of collapsing them. And we've lost both of those things, I think, in our contemporary society. You know, we post everything on social media from our first coffee in the morning to our nightcap to our vacations. It's completely changed the way that we conceive of ourselves as individuals. It's changed the way that we think about time and it's completely changed the nature of experience. But more importantly, I think for Arendt, what it's done is it's killed our ability to think. Hmm. You see, Willie, this is and, why I think that loneliness is so closely associated with unlimitedness, with our aversion to limits and our undifferentiatedness, the undifferentiatedness within our lives. It's the very experience of kind of the limits within human life and our coming up against the hard reality or the hard moral reality of other persons. I, I just wonder if this, this is why I suspect these two aspects of loneliness are so closely related. It just sounds to me like when you try to escape the human condition, it's very hard to do that without also shedding your humanity. So we see that pattern developed over and over and over again, right? That there is something about, maybe it is limits, it's, there's something about the limitedness of human existence and submitting to that fact wherein we fully realise our human potential. Whereas when you're trying to, I don't know, achieve some kind of utopian fantasy that in which none of those rules apply, well, maybe we need those rules, actually. Like, maybe, that's, <laughs> maybe that's part of what it is to be who we are. Um, as you were talking before, Samantha, I, it just could not escape the thought that all of the things you're identifying are critiques that were made and could still be made of something like television. And you could probably even say radio, podcasting. Like, in other words, anything that substitutes mediated experience for real experience, or real, is that the right word? I don't know. This would all be contested, I guess. <laughs> but you know what I mean? So, so television was this, well, forget television, the national press, newspapers, that was this incredible development. This was, you know, famously Benedict Anderson's point, that it allowed us to create solidarities, imagine communities beyond our local and sustain fictions like the nation state, right? There's a kind of fiction that this is underwriting here and it makes these things possible. But it, we never quite escape, do we, the fact that these are fictions. And so there's a connection that comes when you create these fictions, but there's an alienation that comes when these fictions start to displace what might be less fictitious forms of social formation. That is those that are more localised, more fully human, where the full complexity and moral reality of other human beings we can't avoid because we're constantly bumping into it. And when we sort of transpose that into the, the key of the digital world, really what we see is just that it's the same phenomenon, but it's just pervading more and more of our life, more and more of our social interactions. There's a bug of alienation that's built into all this. And so we shouldn't be surprised, should we, when loneliness becomes a really common or pervasive condition. I want to I want to throw the word yine back in there. You know, so part of the premise of the book that I am writing on loneliness is that the loneliness epidemic as as it's being phrased and has been talked about for the past several years now is actually more reflective of a different kind of phenomenon that we are experiencing in our society at this moment which does have a lot to do with alienation. Loneliness is very much a part of the human condition. Everyone feels lonely from time to time. And to talk about loneliness as 
an epidemic is it's doing several things. One, it creates a kind of stigma around the experience of loneliness, which then contributes to the shame people can feel when they feel chronically lonely. Uh, but also it's completely transformed loneliness into a kind of market where there are many different solutions to try and fix the experience of loneliness. And to do that would be to deprive people, I think, of part of what it means to be human. But in order to you know, think about that, we have to think about the way we're talking about loneliness. It's very difficult to talk about loneliness without immediately talking about other feelings, material, social, or political circumstances. Today, loneliness has become completely, almost entirely synonymous with social isolation, but that's far from what it meant in the middle of the 19th century or even in the 17th century. And so the way that we, we're talking about loneliness is more reflective, I think, of the social and political and economic phenomena that we are facing today. And part of that reality and part of that alienation is that we have never been more connected through travel, trade, and technology through the various forms of media as they've evolved over time from radio to television, newspapers, live debate, broadcast, elections, uh, the 24-7 news media cycle, you know, this idea that we are constantly connected to one another all the time actually it's a strange kind of connection kind though, of, isn't it, Samantha? It is, but it's the root of loneliness. Loneliness is a social phenomenon. And this is a point that Arendt makes really beautifully in Origins in that last section on ideology and terror, you know, which she added in 1958, the same year she published The Human Condition, but she wrote it at the height of McCarthyism. And she talks about how you're most lonely when you're with other people. And it's not quite solitude. That's the opposite side of loneliness. But it's, I think, pivoting to think about loneliness as a reflection of it's not quite atomization either, but it's this constantly being connected in this way to other people that is entirely at the surface level. And it is all about appearances. And I think the reality that we spend most of our time living in today is all about appearances. And there's no depth to human interaction, let alone much touch mm. anymore. But this, I think, brings us back to the issue of skepticism. Of, of course, you're right, Samantha, that loneliness is far from a quintessentially modern phenomenon. I mean, it's, it's simply not. But there's no understanding of loneliness that isn't associated with some sense of unhappiness. There's no. That's actually not true. Okay, please. Sorry. So the first use of the word loneliness, uh, you know, put my professor hat on for you, was in Ar Arcadia, and then it doesn't become popularized, of course, until Shakespeare uses the term in Coriolanus and in Hamlet. And there it had very explicit uh, religious connotations. And in, in both of those early usages, it's actually a kind of either joke about a woman being alone in a room or uh, is connected to sin in mm -hmm. some way. But in other cultures um, and still for a long time, loneliness was actually used as a verb. It didn't actually have anything to do with a feeling, but it meant to venture far from one's home. Mm. So you could say something like to go off on a lonely, mm. to be on a lonely. And that would mean to be in a place outside of, you know, where you had grown up, mm. basically. This would be quintessentially Thoreau. Uh, Thoreau is catastrophically lonely within Concord. And yet so he, he has Emerson right there. He goes to the farmer's market every week to I, sell his vegetables. I know, I know. But that is, that's precisely the exception that proves the rule of his isolation from his experience of the conformists that inhabited Concord. The point that I was, I guess, feebly trying to make is that, I mean, what seems to be behind the concept of loneliness is the idea of being, uh, when it's not connected, say, to solitude more straightforwardly, is the idea of somehow being ill at ease, being ill at home, not having one's place 
within the world, to some extent, either being alienated or being abandoned, which is why you can find yourself in company with others. And yet, if you feel yourself profoundly not at home with those others, either by the way they talk, by the way they dress, by what it is they value, by the way that it is that they mingle or conduct themselves, you can find yourself incredibly lonely. And this then, I think, brings us to the question of skepticism. Because if you then believe that this simply is the way that things are, or that the way that things are, are fundamentally unknowable, and that there's some other key, there's some other form of knowledge that I would need to have access to in order to feel properly at home in the world, and I can't act within it or interact with others uh, as they are in a way that would make sense, then that then becomes that kind of radically isolating experience of existential Mm -hmm. loneliness, um, which is Mm -hmm. why the overcoming of skepticism, the falling back on forms of belief in the capacity to cooperate with others, to speak meaningfully with others, to build something like a common world and enter something like a shared life. uh, These then become the necessary antidotes to loneliness, but it's not clear to me how that sort of thing can be achieved when the very conditions yeah. of our ability to speak to one another have become but it's, but it's so radically that. challenged. It's, it's more than that, Scott, though. I think this is the great irony of what Arendt's observing. All of those things you've spoken about there come from restriction. There's no shared world in a world without restriction. Mm-hmm. If you have endless scepticism, actually part of what that is is a kind of endless valorization of the self, right? because I can constantly Mm -hmm. undermine what's coming at me. We live in societies that are obsessed with freedom, but we talk about it all the time. We will hold quite visceral positions opposing things on the basis that they restrict freedom, um, particularly freedom of individual expression, all these sorts of things. But what we don't realise is that that pursuit of that kind of unbounded freedom that is based on a perpetual deconstruction ends up being no real freedom at all because what it precipitates is this kind of loneliness. You no longer have the conditions for a shared life and for anything like the kind of connections we're talking about that are connections in anything beyond a linguistic sense, Mm. which is perhaps how I would describe Mm. contemporary forms of connection. They're linguistic connections, but they're not not the kinds of connections that pre-moderns would have recognised, I don't think. Yeah. I want to pick up on that and say that there's one, there's no antidote to loneliness. Mm. Um, that would be to cure the human condition. And and I don't think any of us want to do that. Walid, I was really, I really like the distinction you made earlier in the opening between individuality and individualism, because mm. the kind of tyranny of individualism that we're experiencing today, I think is deeply connected to the loneliness that people are talking about and feeling and also the loss of freedom, as we might call it, or at least the rise of right-wing populism that is peddling a certain kind of ideology which promises to fix the social and political and personal frustrations of people's lives. You know, I think it's interesting to note that Arendt didn't actually use the word loneliness for loneliness. Uh, she's not actually talking about uh, uh, the feeling of loneliness when she writes about it. Arendt never talked about feelings. For her, they were completely cast out of the public political realm. She argued for the commons, common sense, reason, the need to appear before one another and talk. Um, any kind of politics staked in feeling for her was was very dangerous because politics requires a kind of stability. Freedom requires stable political institutions and any kind of politics motivated by the most fragile part of the human condition cannot be stable. And you can agree with that or disagree with it. But the word that she uses for loneliness is Verlassenheit in German, which actually means a sense of abandonness, of feeling abandoned into the world. And, you know, Scott, when you were giving the example of your son earlier on, you said, Dad, I just feel so alone is what he said to you. And that that hurt in a way to hear that. And it immediately reminded me of a gorgeous and heartbreaking line in Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay experience, 
which is about the death of his son, as I'm sure you know, Mm. he, in this, this sentence to me has always really captured the heart of loneliness in especially the way that Arendt talks about it in the human condition. He says, I could not draw him nearer to me. Mm. You know, sometimes we're in a room with the people that we love the most and we know that they know us better than anyone else out there. And yet sometimes in their company, they make us feel like total strangers. And that's an incredibly lonely feeling. And in the sociological research around loneliness, it gets talked about in terms of expectations. You know, so something like 80 plus percent of married couples report feeling lonely in the first year of marriage. And it's because marriage somehow wasn't what they thought marriage Mm was going to be. But it's about the expectations that we set for other people. And part of the kind of rise of individualism, which insists upon this I that says, I want you to recognize me the way that I already understand myself, forecloses the very thing that allows for real recognition to take place and admits the fact that other people can hurt us And that there's a space that exists between you and me, and you are never going to see me exactly the way that I see myself. And instead of being undone or scared by that, Arendt kind of gives us this picture of a world where that constitutes what she calls the realm of human affairs. And so we, by talking to each other in our differences and our otherness, we weave together this rich fabric of humanity, which is the commons. And for her, that is precisely what is lost. That is what is lost with this crystallization of thinking that happens when people hand their own ability to think, to tell the stories about their experiences, to give meaning to their lives over to other people, over to ideologies, over to political movements. And instead of, you know, thinking for themselves and speaking for themselves, they can just say, well, I don't have to deal with that. Mm. This is the answer. And so that answer, which is the ideology, the political movement, the social group, whatever it is, becomes the framework through which they then experience the world. And that is what becomes isolating and that aren't does connect the word isolating to that sense of loneliness as a feeling of abandonment in the sense that you stop moving in your thinking. People don't think anymore. Mm-hmm. There's just thought. Hence her connection so, between loneliness, claustrophobia, and suffocation, which I've always found the idea of, of simply being cast out and thereby being alone uh, is nowhere near as terrifying in many respects as that of being so hemmed in on all sides as having no space to work and cooperate within the world and to have one's very capacity for speech and thought to be deprived by the fetidity of our common air. There's the next show. That's yeah. one on claustrophobia. I'm sorry, <laughs> claustrophobia. It would be interesting. Um, Samantha, it's been a privilege for us to be able to speak to you. Thanks for staying up late. We really appreciate yes. that. Uh, as well it's as your been my pleasure. Um, Samantha Rose Hill, a writer and lecturer at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research in New York City, the author of uh, Hannah Arendt in the Critical Lives series as well, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at a close. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.